Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Today, my guest is Lisa Quigley. Uh, listeners, I think, are already familiar with Lisa. She's been on a bunch of times before. Lisa runs Solving Hunger Touch Philanthropies, and since today is Thanksgiving, we thought it was a good day to talk about uh, food and hunger uh, and being grateful for what we have, but also how we can make sure that other people have food as well. Um, so, Lisa, first of all, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so let's take kind of a macro step. I know we're going to talk about the specific campaigns that we're launching um, to try to pass universal school meals in 2024. But from a macro standpoint, like how many people in this country would you say are hungry or at least food insecure? And how would you define that? Well, we know that there are millions that are uh, food insecure and there are many different matrix that have recently um uh, come out even in the last month. So one, children in poverty has more than doubled in the last year. And that means that 12.4% of children are now living in poverty. Um, pediatricians are seeing lower or stagnant body weights for young children, which is something that you rarely see in the United States. Food insecurity is increasing much faster in rural areas than it is in urban areas. The USDA just announced the six states, Arkansas, South Carolina, Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, where families are most food insecure. Um, and the New York Times just did a year-long study that talked about the epidemic of chronic diseases that we have in the United States. This one is just stunning. People 35 to 64 are now dying at a higher rate than they were 40 years ago. A lot of that is related to diabetes, to chronic liver problems. You know, we're just not a healthy country. So and why has child poverty doubled in the last year? What changed? So within the last year, it's doubled because so many of the pandemic programs that were helping keep people afloat were taken down by the federal government. So the child tax credit is the one that people immediately think of because it provided funding for families directly so that they could feed their kids, um, but also school meals, right? So universal school meals was something that we had for two and a half years during the pandemic. Every child, every day, every meal at school, breakfast and lunch, um, they got taken care of. And we know that that worked. And then that stopped. And so states have stepped up and said, that worked really, really well. If the federal government isn't going to keep doing it, we're going to make up the difference and make sure kids are fed. So now 15 million children uh, school-aged children, there's about 51 million of them total, but almost, you know, a third of them now are all being fed in school, which is a really, really significant step for trying to make sure that we have healthier kids who can grow up into healthy adults and be part of our workforce. So let's work backwards on the math. So 51 million kids in school, 15 million eligible and receiving universal school breakfast and lunch. Who are the other 36 million kids? So there's another 20 million that, but some of the, them cross over. So there's 20 million kids 
who are eligible for free and reduced price meals. And those kids are in families that make under $55,500 a year. So that's if you're in a family of four, which is really, really hard to make it uh, in America these days, right? Especially high cost um, states like New York, which is why it was great that we were able to get a campaign that was successful this year to help feed 80% of New York school children. Um, but so you've got 20 million that are automatically eligible for free and reduced meals. But is that inclusive of the 15 million or this is separate? Yeah. So then, but then there's 15 that are like in a different basket, but there's crossover because look at a state like California, for example, which is past universal school meals. All the kids there are fed breakfast and lunch, but some of those kids would have been fed breakfast and lunch because they are in low, low income households. Right. So, so then there are, they're basically, if you break it down, um, not by the kids that are the neediest, which is basically what the school meal programs deal with. But if you break it down by States, um, there are eight States now that feed all the kids, no questions asked breakfast and lunch every day. So we basically have 42 states more to go to make sure that all kids who need a meal are getting fed in school. So, all right, let's but let's let's keep drilling on this. So, because yeah. I think we would all agree that there should be zero hungry kids. There's some percentage of that 51 million that whose parents have no problem being able to send lunch, afford lunch, whatever it is. So again, while you and I agree that it's actually just more efficient in many ways to just still have school meals for everybody, what what percentage is that group of the 51 million that we just know that in theory don't need to worry about? Yeah, so there's basically 10%, right? There's 10% of kids in America today that aren't considered food insecure, right? They live in households where it's not going to be a problem for their parents to either send them to school with a meal or be able to pay for that meal. But we're looking at like 90% of kids today because the level is so low to qualify, to be eligible for school meals. For example, if you have a household that makes $39,000 a year annually, right? $39,000, yes, you qualify for free, but if you make 40,000, you don't qualify for free. So you qualify for reduced price. So you still, the kids still have to come to school with money to pay for their meal or they get charged on their account. And we've seen massive meal debt all over the country because kids and families aren't able to pay those bills. And so then the schools have significant meal debt and they put the pressure on states and states are like, what do you mean you can't pay this debt? What do you mean you want us to pay this debt? Which is also part of the reason that we're saying, look, you know, states should just feed the kids. It's better for economies of scale anyway. And you don't have to deal with all this meal debt that all that we're seeing all over the country. So we spent trillions and trillions of dollars during the pandemic, pro probably rightfully so, to keep people afloat and keep the economy going. Um, we spend, you know, hundreds of billions every year in the military, which I think we need. I think it's important to have a strong military. But it just seems like if you're just being rational about it, the cost of feeding all kids, like literally, if you were to start a society from scratch and say, what are our priorities? Like, 
feeding kids would be in the top five, right? Like kids shouldn't go hungry. Um, we're talking, what, $10 billion a year, 20, even if, if we want to be super generous on all of it. I mean, it is a de minimis amount of money in the scheme of what we spend on other stuff. Um, and yet, given the expiration of the pandemic programs, we're now left to having to try to pass this state by state. So, you know, you are, uh, you know, a longtime Democrat. You worked in the House for, for a couple of decades um, for a Democratic member. Um, but you also live in Tennessee. So you're certainly, you know, very exposed to other other political points of view. Yeah. Um, what's the give me the best case argument that you can for why we shouldn't be feeding spending taxpayer money to do this? You know, all I can tell you is what the arguments have been that we've had to overcome, which frankly, in the states where we've worked, the arguments haven't been that hard to overcome because everybody thinks that the kids should be fed. Um, it pretty much falls um, to the cost and that it's an, it's new money, right? So if USDA is already helping you feed your neediest kids and then you just kind of go off and do your own thing and run your state and don't think about the rest of the kids that might be food insecure. And then the other kids that probably aren't food insecure, but if you fed them, it would create a different environment in the school, a much more welcoming environment. Everybody's kind of eating together. Everybody's sort of, you know, on an equal playing field is suddenly you're being asked to come up with the funds to compensate for what USDA doesn't do. And it's new money, right? So it's like a totally new program. And so for states and state lawmakers, their biggest problem is, you know, this is a brand new program. We don't have the money. Um, actually, they almost all have the money right now, right? Because not only did the pandemic um, allow for huge transfers of federal funds to states, um, but states have been pretty good about um, uh, making sure that they had enough to sort of sustain them year over year in new programs. And so I'll give you an example. You know, Vermont, we've worked in Vermont for the past several years. They finally passed universal school meals. But not only did they pass universal school meals, but they did not want it to be subject to appropriations every year. So Vermont has included universal school meals as part of what a child gets in their educational experience in that state. So it's not going to be subject to appropriations every year. The cost is going to change a little bit. It might increase a little bit year to year, but this is something that families and kids can count on. Um, in the other states that have passed universal school meals, you know, we hope that they keep it going year over year because the results so far are so positive. But the, for the most part, states are nervous about paying for a new program that they didn't have to pay for prior to um, COVID. Um, the only other real reason that we hear, which is, you know, nobody sort of wants to be publicly associated with these comments, um, is that, you know, parents should just take care of their kids, right? It's an ideological argument, you know, like you had these children, you should feed them. And, you know, we have um, done, got, you know, really worked with our local partners to try to connect legislators with what's actually happening in schools and their districts so that they can see 
that you know parents are trying to do their best, but you have the, the cost of living has really soared. Um, grocery costs are really through the roof. Um, that doesn't appear to be coming down. Um, and so they're struggling, right? And they want to do right by their kids, um, but they just don't have the resources. And so we think it's the right investment for a state to make. You're already educating these kids. You're giving them, you know, a free public education. And what goes along with that are books and teachers and school bus rides and playground equipment. And then we just say you're on your own when it comes to nourishing yourself. Like we've just got to pay for breakfast and lunch so that kids can maximize what they're getting out of their educational experience. So here's my fear. There are a percentage of elected officials who agree with everything you just said and say, we're going to make this a priority and we're going to do it. And eight states have, have done that. Right. Um, but you know, and maybe there's five to 10 more that just with a halfway decent campaign can kind of follow the same lines, you know, relatively quickly within a year or two, but we're still going to be at probably under 50% of states. And we've got, not just Republican governors, but Democratic governors who don't give a shit, right? I think about my conversation with Ned Lamont, where he couldn't wrap his head around universal school meals in Connecticut because he was so worried that some rich kid from Greenwich might get a free meal that he's literally letting kids starve because he, I don't know if he's not intelligent enough or compassionate enough, but there's something off about the man where he literally couldn't wrap his head around that. Now, they eventually did breakfast because we beat the shit out of them politically to the point where they wanted the pain to stop, and so they did it. And they don't want it to recur again. Um, but but here's my macro political concern. You know, we'll pick up. So this year we're doing, you know, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Ohio, South Carolina, Arkansas. We think Ohio is probably a two-year campaign. We'll, we'll win some or m- most of those. Um, and we'll say we continue to do that for a couple of years, right? And then, then we've cleared out all the low-hanging fruit. After that, if a politician isn't swayed by the pure argument of like, don't you want kids to not starve? That means the decision they're making is solely political. Is feeding kids better for me than something else? And if the answer is no, something else is better for my next election, that's what they're going to choose to do. And yet we're in a terrible position because the kids who get the food don't vote because they're kids. And realistically speaking, most of their parents typically don't vote either, right? Some do, but, but most do not. Whether that's because voting is too inconvenient or they're working two jobs, or or they don't care enough, or whatever it is, they're not voting. So how are we going to get the last 30 states? I mean, you know, there may be some like in New York and Connecticut where we can just bully them into it. And obviously, I'm more than happy to do that. Uh, you're catching me in a pessimistic mood on a pessimistic day. But like, t- t- tell me the path forward here, because at the moment, I don't see it. So, you know, I was in, um, I was in California this um this last, I guess a month ago for a, a college reunion. And I was telling my, um, my former classmates what I'm working on and feeding kids in school. And several of them said, but we just feed all the kids in California. They just go to school and they get breakfast and lunch. And so doesn't everybody do that? And I think that that's going to be sort of the path forward is that, you know, before the pandemic in 2019, there were no states that were doing universal school meals. The federal government came in and rescued everybody for a couple of years and decided one of the highest priorities is just to feed all the kids in school. And so they did. And then they decided, well, that worked well, so let's not do it anymore, which is crazy. 
But other states said, well, wait a minute, that actually worked really well. And so they've stepped up. So there's eight that have done it. It's very much now a part of the culture. And I really think it's going to be the kind of thing where people say, what do you mean in in Idaho that you don't feed the kids? Like, what's wrong with you people, right? Like we feed them in Michigan. We feed them in Minnesota. We feed them in New Mexico. So I think that the pressure will build and that eating in school is just seen as something that should have been done from the first place. Um, what we're really seeing in places like... Um, like uh, Vermont and and even Connecticut, where they were faced with the problem of out-migration, is that they've kind of had a decision made amongst, um, you know, with their kind of their long-term uh, planning and their legislators and their governors that we have to do some things to make sure that families want to stay here. Um, and one of the things that they can sell in Vermont now is we feed the kids in school. It's something that you don't have to worry about. Families don't have to worry about that because we've taken care of it. And it's worth, you know, thousands of dollars a year, right? To make sure that you, to send your kids to school and know that they're going to get fed. So I think that the political pressure that we apply um, is very important for getting sort of the list made longer of the states that are doing this. And after a while, states are going to look around, especially to their neighboring ones, and see that they're doing it. Um, others are doing it and they're not, and they're going to step up and say, we've got to do it too, because it's what people expect. So what, what can the federal government do on its own without Congress? And what has Biden done? And do we think that he has done enough? So one of the main things that the Biden administration has done is, and this gets a little complicated, but there's something called the community eligibility provision, which is what allows all the kids to be fed in high poverty schools. And the formula was if 40% of the kids qualify, then, then that school can become a CEP school and all the kids can get fed. There are some costs involved, um, but a lot of the schools, and it's kind of cultural differences, like in some states, they really embrace CEP and in other states, they're like, uh, not so much. So one of the things that the federal government did is, uh, you know, the Biden administration is they just lowered the threshold to 25%. So if you're in a school where 25% of the kids qualify for free and reduced meals, then you are eligible to onboard to the community eligibility program and just feed all the kids in the school. Again, there are costs involved. And so one of the things that the administration has not done is they've not put additional dollars to support um, those states and those schools for onboarding onto CEP. So it's it, it, it sends up funding if, if the rule if a, if the rule is enacted, yeah. doesn't funding by law just have to follow the rule? So there are there's a very complex because adults make things so complicated and we should just feed the kids and figure out a way to do that. There's a complicated formula involved for all those kids that are in those schools where there's a high level of poverty. And so the reimbursement rates for the meals vary. And when the reimbursement rates uh, uh, don't match with what the school's funds are, right? If they have to actually pay more in order to onboard the kids so that they can let the federal uh, dollars flow and they don't have those funds, then they decide not to onboard to CEP because they don't have the money, which is why in North Carolina this last year, the campaign that we 
what that we ran um, was, you know, optimistically, we hoped that they would all embrace universal school meals. And while they while they did not embrace universal school meals yet, they made a really important first step by appropriating funds to onboard schools to CEP so that all those new schools that are eligible uh, for community eligibility will now have additional funds to help them get to the place where they can let the federal funds flow. So it's a it's a complicated formula. You nor your listeners probably want to go through the math on it, but there is a pathway for more schools to get fed with funds from the federal government, but there's startup costs and states need to either decide to feed all the kids and to pay that cost, or they need to at least provide some startup money so that states, so that schools can do it on their own. So you're a centrist. So basically what I'm about to do is just a rant that I don't think you're going to disagree with. But uh-huh. but it, it, it seems to me that I, I just don't get the blatant moral hypocrisy of the far left and the far right on this issue. The far left issues moral purity tests every day to decide who is you know worthy and good and who is bad. And yet very rarely do I see any DSA socialist left-wing types you're really being our champion on school meals i mean it's not that they would vote against it if the bill became up for them but they're not spending political capital on it they're too busy complaining about foreign policy or pronouns or whatever it is um and that's fine i mean i don't disagree with them on a lot of this stuff but but at the same time like how could you possibly put all of that ahead of feeding kids if you see yourself as this righteous person which they all are so desperate to have their identity be based around that or on the on the right, look, I'm not Christian, but I'm pretty fucking sure Jesus would have wanted the kids to eat, right? And I really don't understand how evangelical Christians cannot make this their top priority. And I know that there are some that we have talked to who do actually support us for, for those reasons. But o- overall, I mean, you've been in politics for decades. How do we have a situation where the people who are the most vocal and the most self-righteous are so unwilling to dedicate any political capital towards probably the single most basic issue. Yeah, so that's a lot. And and yes, I agree. Um, I think on the left, you know, the problem is, is that feeding kids isn't particularly sexy, right? Like it's not the new shiny thing. It's not the thing that they feel like they can, you know, raise money from their donors, right? Because feeding kids is not, you know, some of these other issues that they've sort of grabbed onto and decided are the things that define them and make them different. And it's also very practical. I got to say that in some of those places where they have community eligibility, it's cities. And those cities are represented by the most liberal Democrats. And so one of the things that we found, frankly, in, you know, Connecticut is that the leaders of the legislature were all from cities whose schools were participating in community eligibility. And so their kids were getting fed. They just didn't really care about the kids in the rest of the state that weren't getting fed. And so in part, the left, like they're already taken care of, like their people. So they don't really care about the other people. And that's something that we've been running into. And, you know, it's discouraging. I will say um, that there are some folks on the right that are very focused on um, sort of 
making sure that now that more kids are going to be here because of the Dobbs decision, that they are looking for a pathway to care for them so that it's not just like there's a value of life. There was a story in one of the papers today, you know, just based on since Dobbs, looking at the states that have passed abortion bans, there are 32,000 more births than they think otherwise would have happened had abortion been legal in those states. The very fucking least, I would argue, let women decide for themselves, the very fucking least you could do is if you're going to mandate that these kids be born, you can fucking feed them. Right. And I mean, we have some leaders in some of these states, and I I don't want to necessarily out them all right now, but who are very focused on this. And, you know, we don't agree politically on things individually, but boy, we really share this interest in making sure that, you know, kids are going to get fed and taken care of in a myriad of ways. Um, And I'm really hopeful that that's our path forward. You know, the, the places where you're finding the most food insecurity are in the Midwest and the South. And so there's no, it's not a coincidence that we're, you know, going to be in Illinois, PA, Ohio, Arkansas, and South Carolina this year. Um, And we'll see how some of these themes are are tested. Like, here's an example. Um, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders of Arkansas this year passed the, or signed the, the bill that was passed by the legislature. And she enthusiastically supported the state paying for the cost of the reduced price cost. So that's the the not the poorest, most desperate families, but the ones just a notch above that. They have to pay something for their school meals. And she signed a bill to say, no, actually, the state's going to pay for that. And that is a step forward and not a step that many, many states who are led by Democratic governors have done yet, right? So she's leading on that. And I'd like to see if this experiment, right, is going to play out in in this way in the South, because we have a, a theme emerging here, right? Like we have people that are saying, there's a big change in, you know, in the um, abortion laws. And what does that mean for our state? And what does that mean going forward so that we can make sure that we're taking care of kids? And, you know, that is, um, you know, a, a sign of hope. All right. So let's delve quickly into the five states that we we picked. Um, why did we pick these five states? And, and give me the outlook for the campaign in each. Yeah. So the first one is Illinois, because Illinois passed universal school meals this last year, but they didn't provide any funding for it. So, you know, not a new, there's not one single additional kid who's being fed, even though they all voted for like, oh, this is a great idea. So we're working in Illinois to um, convince uh, the governor, the legislature um, to fund universal school meals. And, you know, it's, it's a big, you know, price tag, right? Um, as I say, sort of new new program. Um, but clearly the legislature wants to do it. They're not having to be convinced about the policy, but now we just need to have them put the dollars where the policy is. Um, in, in Pennsylvania, um, we have a governor who has, um, Josh Shapiro, who has um, continued part of the COVID era feeding programs for kids. In that, in PA, every child gets breakfast when they come to school. And that's terrific, right? Because that is a real step 
forward. Um, it's nowhere near what the other eight states are doing, but we think PA um, wants to be like the other ones um, and they want to feed kids both breakfast and lunch. And so we're working there to convince um, the governor and the legislature to do that. Um, in Ohio, this campaign will be a two-year because they only have a budget year in odd-numbered years. So the next time we have a chance is in Ohio. Um, Governor DeWine, a Republican, this will be his last budget, and he has traditionally been very supportive of kids. In that state, we're also working with Mission Readiness, a group of uh, retired generals and admirals um, who see the nation's readiness dependent um, on kids being healthy, including school meals. So they've joined with us um, in that campaign. And Governor DeWine was actually um, one of the original members of their board when they formed this organization a number of years ago. So um, we're working that one there. Um, and another that uh, two other states, South Carolina and Arkansas. South Carolina um, is and Arkansas were both trying to get a stepping stone to universal school meals, which is universal breakfast, right? So PA already has universal breakfast. We want Arkansas and South Carolina to get to that point as well. Um, we have friendly environments in both states. We have very passionate advocates. We have well-positioned legislators, and we have governors that are very open to this. And so we feel this is these are very good opportunities for us and a good way to show how the South can lead. Um, you know, I think leadership in the South is going to come from smaller states, not from the bigger Southern states that tend to be, um, you know, really sort of focused on being an incubator for right-wing politics rather than being an incubator for things that would actually help children. So um, I'm very optimistic about both of those states as well. So last question, I think the answer is we don't have a mechanism for this, but okay, so you're a listener of this podcast. You agree that kids should eat. You agree that you would like to try to be helpful in some way. How do they do that? Or knowing that the answer is we don't really have a mechanism, what do we need to do to create one? Well, one thing is I'll just, you know, repeat for those listeners that might be interested in in helping is that we have an 80% success rate, right? Like I should have probably led with that is we're not going in and helping states just like sort of because we wish and hope that they would, you know, be at that point where they can pull this off. We go into states where like it's ripe and then we execute and we pick well. So we have an 80% success rate, 24 campaigns we've won in 19 states. And if you, if a listener wants to be part of this. 13 million, even more important than the number of bills. 13 million more people now get food on a regular basis who would, didn't get it before those bills passed. And about $6 million of our money has helped unlock about $2 billion in new government spending on hunger programs. So, yep, absolutely. And, and I mean, even just, you know, last year, um, there's one and a half million more children who walked into the schoolyard this year in September and began having a guaranteed breakfast or lunch, I'm sorry, and lunch, uh, no matter what their family income was. That's just a million and a half just this year that are new, right? So we're able to sort of count the number of kids 
that are beginning to be fed in school by the millions every year. So if somebody wants to help with that, right, like this, this is um, essential to the safety and the health of our communities, right? It's, it's very, um, it's very local. And if you want to help with that, one of the funders this year, uh, associate of Bradley's said, will you take a look at South Carolina? Because my wife is from South Carolina and they always end up at the bottom of the list of the good things and the top of the list of the bad things. And we looked at South Carolina and saw that there were genuine opportunities to get something passed. And so that's part of the reason we're in South Carolina, right? Is that, you know, one of our funders said it would be important to me if we made some progress there. So not only can you help feed millions of kids if you want to help with this um, with this project, but we like to work with you to figure out what local knowledge do you have that might contribute to us deciding to be there or not. So reaching out to Bradley, reaching out to me at lisatuskphilanthropies.org um, is a way to get connected. And, you know, we're so hyper-focused on um, not only getting this done, but of sharing our progress with our funders is that I just do, you know, monthly um, sessions where I privately just talk to people about what's happening in every state. Um, we really, really appreciate the help. Um, with 50% more dollars this year, we're going to be able to feed more kids. And that's the mission. Yeah. So just, just to sum it up there a little bit, um, if you're a listener that cares about this, there's a few ways you can help. One would be um, if you have really specific political knowledge and relationships in your state and you have political capital that you're able to expand and you're willing to expend on this, we would take it. Um, this is not a plea for money because I don't know it's not an asshole, but we don't want $200 donations from people. Um, you know, we're talking about millions of dollars here. Um, if you happen to have six or seven figures that you want to give to this, uh, give me or Lisa a call. We'd be glad to talk to you about it. Um, I'm assuming that's generally not going to be the case for most of our listeners, but a lot of you are politically connected in some way. And if you are willing to expend some of that political capital, even if you're a regular donor to state and local candidates and you're willing to call them and push them, that's useful. So um, specifically in the five states we're doing this year, Arkansas, South Carolina, Illinois, Illinois, Ohio, uh, and Pennsylvania. But just generally speaking, uh, if, if you want to help, we'd love to hear from you. So, Lisa, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Family. And, uh, thank you. Yep. And we'll check back in with you soon. Sounds good. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.